Simon, when did you first become interested in aviation? Hi Mike, yep, probably the most uh, random answer you'll get in this show, but um, when I was uh, younger we had a family friend over the road and I went over to see her one day to do a carry out a little errand, I was about four, and I knocked on the door and a man answered the door and he only had one eye, there was a big hole and I ran away screaming as you would do, <laughs> yes. and uh, about an hour later um, our family friend turned up with a couple of model kits, it turned out that the guy who answered the door was a friend of hers, a uh, Kiwi soldier from the war, and his party trick whenever strangers came to, to the door was to take his glass eye out so obviously that completely terrified me and I remember he bought me a Spitfire Mark 9 and a Fokker Wolf 190 so wow. uh, yeah my my little geeky aviation career started, started at that date as well yeah very so, cool story yeah. I like, that's certainly one of the weirdest we've had so. it, I, I did think it was weird yeah <laughs> never expected that yeah. but uh, yeah so yeah what year did you join the REF it was um, 1996 I, I joined up um I did a slightly longer course through officer training, so the, the RAF decided that I'd benefit from a couple of extra months, which uh, actually benefited me in the long run. So, uh, yeah, it, um, so I ended up um, uh, getting a, a prize at the end of my, my officer training course, which was which was great. I was full of myself. It was the um, Group Captain's Williams Group Captain Williams Memorial Prize for the most improved cadet, or as my mates called it, the fuckwit prize. And they said, once you're a fuckwit, now you're not so much of a fuckwit. So, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, it got me my choice of um, hold after, which was great. So uh, there's a whole host of um, choices you can do, and one of those was was Cyprus, where I, I went and spent three months before I started um, flying training. So. So yeah, that was really good in 1997. So did you have a type that you wanted to go on to or did you always want to go into helicopters? Well, I think everybody in those days, certainly, they, they joined up to be a single seat fighter pilot. And I think, you know, I when I went through, I, you know, I didn't even know anything about helicopters. I thought you, you'd either be a Jaguar or a Harrier pilot, or if you, you know, maybe you, you, you messed up at some stage, you're going to fly Hercules, you know, that's no offense to Hercules pilots. We've got plenty of friends who have brilliant careers. Never even knew anything about helicopters. So. Um, when I went out to Cyprus and, and held there, they, uh, it was a Wessex squadron at the time, and they flew over a single pilot Wessex. I mean, I'd never flown in my life, and um, pretty much every time they went flying, they'd give you a slot. So I started flying helicopters uh, through them. Absolutely loved it, and um, and also through flying sorry through flying training through officer training, uh, I ended up being taken flying with the the Army Air Corps in a Gazelle, which is just a brilliant little aircraft. It's like a yeah, goldfish bowl and we went ever on 150 knots and what felt like about three feet above the ground chasing deer all over Scotland and um, yeah so after that I came back started um, my first flying course and finished that did did okay through that and they said um, you know what do you want to do and I said I want to be a helicopter pilot and they said well you've got to be a you've got to put down jets so I went okay yeah that's cool as well so I put jets down and they sent me to fly helicopters so uh, <laughs> it all kind of worked out in the end brilliant so let's talk about some of the aircraft you started training on yeah so the uh, Firefly uh, T67 was the first one I started flying um, they changed this system just after I went through so um, you used to go and fly to Carno and that's being a real sort of history geek, you know, I, I only ever wanted to fly the Spitfire and the Takano was the closest you would ever get to a Spitfire without being a Spitfire. Uh, unfortunately, they changed it. So when I got to the end of my flying training, they streamed you to helicopters, uh, multis or jets. And obviously I got sent helicopters. So I missed out that stage uh, and then went to Shawbury to fly the, the Squirrel, which is a lovely little aircraft, a bit like the Gazelle. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I did about 70 hours on there. Um, I was sent solo. Uh, by a chap called John Garnons Williams, and real, real strange um, fact. But the yeah, the, the aircraft he sent me solo in ten years later was the aircraft that he was he was killed by. I actually, oh. collided with him uh, two thousand and seven, the same place as well. So, wow. I you know, I was just looking through my logbook the other day, and I, I realised that and it was absolutely horrific. You know, so yeah. Um, 
Yeah, really, really makes you think. He was a lovely chap as well. Yeah. Um, but from there, I went to fly the, the, the Griffin, where I uh, subsequently became uh, an instructor later in life. Um, and then that was, I got my wings in 1999. Mm-hmm. So it was, it was damn hard work. I don't think I was the most natural pilot, you know. <laughs> but uh, somehow I managed to bluff my instructors and got my wings in uh, February 99. So what kind of flying would you be conducting during this uh, training or in the initial uh, phase of your training? Okay, through uh, Shawbury. The um, yeah, it's kind of like a standard routine you follow, where you, you know you convert onto the aircraft for a, for a helicopter. It's um, very much starts with the hovering. So on the squirrel, I mean, never. You know, I'd had a few freebie flights in the Wessex, as I said earlier, but um, you know they start by giving you one control at a time. They don't want to uh, you know max, sort of max you out. So you might start with a, the cyclic, and they had a, a huge grass airfield at Chetwind, and you literally be in the middle of that. You'd be all over the place, up, down, left, <laughs> and right. And eventually they work out um, and they give you the collective as well and then finally the pedals. Uh, the problem with helicopters is um, the controls have primary and secondary effects. So often you do one thing and actually there's a, something else happens completely randomly <laughs> or, or what feels like completely randomly. So, so yeah, you start with you know, learning to fly um, that helicopter, progressing onto circuit work. I mean, flying a circuit is, you know, kind of encompasses a lot of the disciplines that you need to, to fly in general. So it's quite a demanding thing to do when you're new. Um, then onto things like confined areas, um, onto the Griffin itself. One of the, the biggest challenges was learning to fly with a, with a crew. So, you know, up to that date, you'd only ever flown single pilot effectively. You're the, the only person in the aircraft. The instructor generally would, you know, they, they would let you dig yourself a big hole. You know, that's that kind of instructional technique is they'd let you get yourself into trouble. And, you know, just before you're about to get in a lot more trouble, they'd kind of pull you out of it and tell you off. Um, <laughs> but with the, with the Griffin, you had, um, you had a crewman in the back. So you had another voice going on your headphones. You had air traffic radios, your instructor nagging you in the left, and then a crewman instructor and a crewman talking as well. So that it kind of sapped your capacity when you started first started flying a, mm-hmm. a bigger aircraft like that but again it followed the same sort of routine with um, you know circuit work and then um, confined areas etc um, what was different on the Griffin we, we started doing um, search and rescue flying as well um, I didn't find it very easy I, I never um, one of the things with helicopters you have to do is what's called the dunker it's an underwater escape training you know a bit like in um, can't which uh, Tom Cruise film it is, but it shows, it shows them going into the uh, the swimming it looks pool. Awful. It is bloody awful. <laughs> yeah, if you ever ask, if, you know, most pilots and crewmen will say it's fine. I hated it. Absolutely <laughs> terrified me. So, uh, yeah, so that's that was a part of the new training you you, you had to do when you went through the uh, the more applied stage. So, um, yeah, so, so search and rescue training was. Um, it's like a basic introduction, about 25 hours, uh, mountain flying, uh, winching over decks, um, over the sea, which is what I didn't enjoy, but um, the mountain flying was amazing. And then from there, we did the, the more applied tactical flying, which is really what I enjoyed more than anything. Um, you know, going off in formations for helicopters, you know, flying around the country at low level and, you know, time and targets and troop inserts. Um, and that's really when I decided that I wanted to go to fly uh, troop, you know, trooping helicopter, battlefield helicopters rather than the search and rescue side. So how many hours or how many years did it take before you got airported to your frontline aircraft? It was uh, almost uh, three and a half years and I, 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 did, I did quite well in terms of timing because they missed out the Takano stage. Um, so I, I got there relatively quickly. Uh, there, was, there was a girl on my Shawbury course who, um, she'd gone through the old system and she was actually a trained doctor. So she joined her, I think it was 26 or something, fully qualified doctor. And she went all the way through fast jet training and they, uh, she 
got chopped, I think, on a very last flight. I mean, she was horrifically talented and, you know, wasted on helicopters. But she was mid-30s at this stage. I wow. think she was 34. So she ended up um, leaving. She said, you know, I'll be, it'll be 40 by the time I finish my first tour. So, yeah, it, it's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, Simon, your first frontline uh, aircraft was a Puma. Tell us your first thoughts on the aircraft. Uh, yeah, I loved it. It's... Um, you know, as you can see from the one behind me, it's not quite the same condition as the ones I, I used to fly, but it's, uh, you know, certain angles it looks dumpy and ugly as hell, but actually from sort of you know, other angles it, it's beautiful and it was it was a real pilot's aircraft. It was like a, a little sports car, so I, I absolutely loved flying it. It was great fun to fly. Yeah. So what was the role of the Puma at the time you were flying it? Um, well, there was, there was two frontline squadrons. There was two, sorry, three. Uh, 230, 72 in Northern Ireland and 33 in the UK, and it was essentially battlefield helicopter so flying troops, uh, special forces support, uh, unsung loads, uh, I mean just pretty much everything in support of the army, you're, you know, you're a force multiplier, you're mm. sort of increasing the, you know, the boots on the ground. Yeah. So. so what was the general uh, crew load out? It was generally three crew, so it was a twin pilot and a, one crewman in the back. It, it did used to be a single pilot, which was one of the uh, the attractions for the for the uh, the Puma Force was you got to fly uh, just one pilot and then the crewman would come forward and jump in the left. But that changed just before I got there. But uh, we did fly a lot of the time with navigators as well. Okay. If you ask any um, Puma pilot if he wants to fly with a pilot or a navigator, he'll always say the navigator because <laughs> you got to do the flying and the navigator got to do all the hard work, you know, <laughs> radios and navigation. So let's talk about your ground training and can you just talk us through what you had to go through to be, before you started flying the aircraft. Yeah, it's just a you know standard RAF ground school. Um, I think it was sort of six weeks or so at RAF um, RAF Benson, and it just followed the standard routine of talking you through all the um, you know the, the systems on the aircraft and a, you know a big exam at the end. But um, it was a classic learn and dump. You know, you, you suck it all in, and then you know day one you spat out the other end to <laughs> desperately try to remember everything as you start to fly it. So yeah, yeah, it must have been a bad memory because I can't remember which side. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about your first flight. Can you remember that? Um, no, I can't. I'm going to be entirely honest. I know I, d I did look at my logbook before this to try and forget, but no, it's. Um, I mean, I, I can tell you what it will have been like yeah. because they're all pretty much the same, and that is a complete, uh, you know, massive confusion trying to follow what was going on. The, the Puma is a wonderfully simple aircraft, um, but like anything, it just takes you a little while to, to get used to a, a, a new aircraft. So what squadron were you based with for your training? Yeah, you, you're attached to 33 Squadron. It was a, a flight of 33 Squadron with the dedicated instructors. Um, carried out, you know, it's a much more intense course than the, um, the the ones you'd done through training. It was the first time I'd flown with military instructors as well, and it was oh, it was really different flying with, uh, sorry, exclusively military instructors as opposed to a mix of military and civilians. So they took no prisoners, it's fair to say. And I don't think I've worked as hard before or since getting through that course by the skin of my teeth. It was, wow. uh, it was damn hard work. Were um, you expecting to be like that, though? No. Right. <laughs> no, I wasn't. <laughs> it all felt, even if I could draw a line, it all felt quite gradual. And then you got to the conversion flight, and suddenly it was, uh, you know, it was like a precipice. You were hanging, hanging on with your, your fingertips. Um, I think what it was was, you know, your previous courses, they kind of, they were stepped. Whereas going through the, the OCF, um, everything was more compressed because you're a qualified service pilot. You know, you had your wings on your chest and they expect you to be able to fly without them telling you. But um, And also while you're doing the course and you're learning the aircraft, um, you know, you're planning and organising overseas trainers. So for us, we did a tour all around Europe and we're also organising them. Um, 
the operational phase, which has taken the aircraft away for, I think it was two or three weeks, to, to north of England, trooping, flying through electronic warfare ranges. So this is all going on where you're trying to, desperately trying to learn how to fly the aircraft and remember the checks. So, <laughs> so I didn't know much going capacity. On. <laughs> so let's talk about the flying training. What would it be like? Um, yeah, so it was, it, it, you know, it was tough. It was, um, as I said, it was quite, if you imagine you did the Shawbury course in probably about 10 hours to start with, and then we moved on to things like procedural instrument flying. Uh, you know, flying through airways, etc. Um, then we uh, moved on to the, the OCS trainer, which was fantastic fun. So that was taking four aircraft around um, Europe. Uh, that was in the days before the Euro. So, you, you know, day one, you'd be given all your various currencies. Um, I didn't realise we were doing two nights in France. So I spent all my French Euros on the first, sorry, French uh, francs on the first night. You know, day four, I realised I didn't have any French francs left. And I couldn't get any, which is a bit embarrassing. But it, it was a wonderful trip. Um, basically, a, a sort of anti-clockwise route around Europe. Um, included, I think I sent you one of the photos, uh, flying over the Mona Dam at 50 feet, which was just incredible, you know, exactly how... You wish I had to pinch yourself. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it makes you think, I think the Dambuses did it 60 foot at night, so, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was scary enough 50 foot by day, so... Uh, really, yeah. yeah, so it's fabulous fun. So let's talk about how their Puma handled and what were its strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, it was... Uh, it, it was a very basic aircraft, um, you know, a lot of the other helicopters and particularly the modern helicopters which are flying now have got wonderful autopilots, you know, you, um, you know, Sherlock Holmes, he says you can always identify an airline pilot by the size of his index finger because it's ginormous because he spends his whole time pressing buttons, whereas an old aircraft like this, there's not that many buttons to press, um, it's, you know, it's mainly manual flying and, you know, looking at my logbooks at five, six hour flights with a navigator, um, you know, that was all hand flying, that is, the autopilot and the Puma was, was really basic and very limited it gave you a bit of stability control and a, a basic height keeping but um, it was all hand flying so um, the strengths of it, it was a very very nice helicopter to fly um, there were a couple of foibles with a Puma uh, one of those was your roll divergence which is it's got a big strong tail rotor on the back and if you let it get out of um, balance so your the, the rudders and you try to boot it back in you know typical pilot fashion a big boot of rudder um, that, that it actually could induce a strong um, roll um, and they showed it in training and effectively it's like the the helicopter almost turning over so uh, that's quite uh, that's quite interesting but the, the the main foible with the puma is its lack of anticipators so most helicopters, you know, the, the power lever is a collective. So, you know, the handbrake-y type thing that your, your pilot generally has in the left arm. Um, so if you imagine, you, you know, you, you demand power from the engines. Sometimes, you know, you're pumping the lever like you're trying to inflate a tyre. Um, but to, if you pull it in rapidly, in most helicopters, you have these things called anticipators, which um, they can see you, you rapidly want a load of power and they spool up the engines. Um, in the Puma, it didn't have that. So what could happen is if you try to pull in the lever very quickly to get power, say you're, you know, you're just coming to the end of what's called a quick stop, um, the engines would take a long time to spool up. Uh, reputedly, I don't know if this is true or not, so don't quote me on it, the, um, the, the engines, Turmo 3C4s, were used to dry grain in France. <laughs> so, yeah, <laughs> it's probably just an apocryphal story, but uh, I, I don't know if it's true or not. But it, it, could, it could kill you. So, uh, you know, the, in the training, they, um, the pilot who wasn't flying, he would always look at the, um, the NG gauges, which is the gas generator gauges, and below, I think it's 75%, they would call engines below and then engines above. So when they were above, the, en the aircraft would fly very well and the engines would respond, but below it, it just, it'd take a second or two for the engines to kick in. And it, it nearly caught me out in Northern Ireland once. I came very close to crashing. Um, it was totally my own fault. You know, <laughs> I'll tell you. So, uh, yeah, it does happen. Yeah. So did you work with the Army and Navy closely? 
Uh, yeah, yeah. So um, it goes through flying training, um, all, all the way through flying training, apart from the conversion, was with uh, mixed army and navy, and then actually going to the front line, uh, Northern Ireland, with the army um, and with the navy. We used to have three sets of rules at the time um, you know the RF could do this the Navy could do that and the, generally it was the RF that was a little bit more limiting you know for various reasons but that all you know with the joint helicopter command it was all smashed together and we all had the same rules so mm-hmm. that was good but no you know great bunch of guys and girls you know there was much banter between um, horrific banter mm-hmm. horrific banter <laughs> so I, I remember a Battle of Britain dining in night at RF Aldergrove and the um, there was an RF fly past to that of course and um, the lead RF Puma underneath had uh, fly navy in black gaffer tape which obviously nobody had spotted before they did it so. <laughs> brilliant yeah it's, it's all in good uh, good humor most of the time anyway <laughs> so did you ever fly the Puma in live theaters yeah I mean te- technically Older Grove was a live theater so my first tour was uh, Northern Ireland we flew um, fully armed you know so as, as air crew we flew with a um, a rifle, SA-80, and a pistol, and there were crewmen in the back had a general-purpose machine gun as well. So, and in fact, we had infrared jammer on the aircraft as well because there was a um, surface-to-air missile threat in Northern Ireland. The the IRA had a SA-7 man pads, which is uh, so. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was definitely a live theatre. <laughs> <laughs> Simon, can you share any memorable stories you might have had in the Puma? Yeah, yeah, a few. It's um, it's quite an interesting. Um, or three years I mean the I think I mentioned earlier about the lack of anticipators on the Puma and it really uh, nearly caught me out once um, in fact it did catch me out I was, I was saved by the guys flying with but uh, I was going on holiday that uh, that afternoon so all I could think about was getting on the plane going off on my, on my nice holiday um, and we were looking we had one final pickup of, of troops um, somewhere south of Armagh in Northern Ireland um, and we couldn't see them we were flying along sort of flat out 50 feet and um, I suddenly saw them just go underneath the, the helicopter so I told the crew and what you know I did the punchy uh, you know helicopter pilot you know superhero type thing I just wrapped it on its side pulled around as fast as I could which slows it down and as I said earlier the thing with the anticipators the, the engines wind down because the rotors speed up and we, we rolled out into wind and uh, I, was, I was flaring the aircraft tr- desperately trying to slow it down mm-hmm. and um, engines are still down at this stage and then we kind of run out of um, translational lift at this stage and I yank in an armful of lever to um, arrest the rate of descent of the helicopter. And obviously the engines are still spooled down. So what happened was the aircraft just fell out of the sky Ooh. and we were over a really sloping um, field. There was large rocks and uh, I just completely froze at this stage. I just didn't know what to do because the aircraft isn't flying, it's just sinking. Uh, the guy's flying with was a chap called uh, Jez, who's a really um, experienced, respected and, and liked um, instructor. And he goes, it's all right, mate, I've got it. And all you could do was just lower the lever a little bit and hold the controls and just wait for the engines to come back in. And yeah, I, I was basically a passenger at this stage. So <laughs> I sat there and I think we, we basically hit a bit of ground effect at, I don't know, about five foot or something like this, but it was it was horrific. But uh, I'm not sure the troops wanted to get back on the aircraft after that because they'd seen it come in and then basically fall <laughs> out of the sky. Wow. Um, yeah, and I suppose the other thing was the vortex ring incident as well. So um, a vortex ring for, for the layman effectively is when a, it's a bit like a, a fixed wing stalling. Uh, I've been told by several people that you can't put a puma into vortex ring, and you know I'd like to tell them that my experience <laughs> say true. you can. And um, yeah, so they used to give us a demonstration of what's called incipient vortex ring, which is like the early stages of it. The aircraft gets whooshy and wallowy, um, and uh, because we used to do this surveillance task, which uh, I might cover later. 
where you're sitting high and very heavy altitudes when the air's thin and it's quite easy to get into vortex ring but um, essentially the, the, the sort of the time you might get it is when you're descending with low airspeed. Now the only way we could get the aircraft into vortex ring we were, were up at 6,000 feet um, there was an instructor flying and was going backwards um, with so no negative airspeed and the RF used to teach you that below 30 knots and over 500 feet rate of descent you'd go into vortex ring and, and it didn't we had less than 30 knots went through 500 foot rate of descent and I thought this isn't happening nothing's happening here and then the, ra the rate of descent as, as it hit 800 feet rate of descent <laughs> it suddenly just hit the peg it which was two and a half thousand I think and the aircraft um sort of apologies to use the hands you know but it, it was going backwards and down like this and suddenly it pitched what felt like completely nose down this was at night as well by the way Ooh. and it also rolled 180 degrees and I, I just remember looking across at the guy flying it this chap called parts and he he looked like he was he was trying to uh, you know dig a hole with the controls he was all over the place um, the crewman threw himself on the ground um, I just grabbed the armoured seat and I've never felt like uh, you know, hopefully never again um, a passenger completely out of control in the aircraft and I remember just thinking oh this is it this is it and we uh, somehow just came out at 1500 feet so we lost nearly 5000 feet of altitude wow. and after that they did all the demonstrations of vortex ring in the simulator which is a really good idea oh, I still can't believe they used to do it in the aircraft wow <laughs> um, and maybe the other thing is the, um, the the mission I was involved in when I, I was awarded uh, mentioned dispatchers. So um, I, I would caveat as well. It's not false modesty. You know, I, I read recently a uh, a write up of a para who got mentioned dispatchers for charging a Taliban machine gun nest somewhere in Afghanistan. You know, and you know that's probably at the top end of an MID, and mine was probably you know right at the bottom end. But it was still a, you know it was an interesting day out. Um, so there's uh, me and a chap called Dave um, was the other pilot and Trevor the crewman all first tourists and we were sent to uh, Bestbrook which was the that was the main base for helicopter operations in South Armagh and uh, we were told that <clears throat> the second day we were there there was going to be a, a big demonstration by uh, it was the South Armagh Farmers and Residents Association who were a, a lovely uh, group of chaps and chapesses um, there were I think about 200 of them and they were going to protest against the British um, you know occupation of Northern Ireland so at the time there were various patrol bases in South Armagh and then there were some smaller golf towers as we called them uh, like golf 10230 and 40 and they were they were like they were um, basically surveillance bases big towers uh, but they didn't have many people in them and have a little bit of barbed wire around them um, and essentially they turned up uh, en masse at one of these and you can imagine whatever it was 10, 10 troops there and 200 people trying to get into you know d do nasty things to them mm. it, was, it was all getting very serious so we we took the decision as a crew to um, drastically overload our aircraft so we <clears throat> at the time we had a max weight of um, 7,000 kilograms and operationally you could go to 7,400 uh, we were new, we were flying with the IUC HMSU, which is the heavy riot police, so absolutely massive guys and girls, you know, mm. some of the girls oh, were, right. you know, they'd, yeah. they'd make good prop forwards, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they had all the full riot gear as well, and we took the decision just to fill up the aircraft with as many people as we could. Um, the crewman estimated we were kind of near 8,000 kgs when, when we left, mm. so we are pretty much you know a ton over our max weight but the reason we did that is because we knew that every person was going to count so when we got the call that the um the, the rioters were there we um, departed as soon as we could and we went to the first um, patrol base 
um, there was the landing pad was right next to the wire and as soon as we landed there was sort of bricks, petrol bombs, crossbow bolts, absolutely everything landing in front of you and the wire was, I don't know, I mean 15 feet maybe in front of where we landed so these guys are, you know, this whole row of people are there and they're throwing everything at the helicopter, there's bricks bouncing off the windscreen um, but then, they, you know, the the interesting bit is seeing the, or the riot troops just literally falling out the side of the aircraft. They'd actually been lying on top of each other in the back. So our, our crewman was actually lying. He was touching the top of the cabin roof because really? he was on top of so many people. <laughs> but they literally fell out the side of the aircraft, ran forward, and they were cracking skulls with their truncheons and stuff to stop them. So we, we, we did that for getting on for three hours 40. Of, um, you know, One of my friends very kindly put it, he, he said, blatantly breaking the Puma release to service, which is a document that tells you that you can't fly over a certain weight, etc. Um, but we, the the, um, the rioters went from patrol base to patrol base, and um, we, we we would empty the troops from one patrol base, take them to another, fill them up. They'd deal with the riot, and then they'd all go somewhere else, and we get the call to go there. Um, we ended up going into a place called Cross McGlen, which was um, uh, is, is the only town in the UK, as far as I'm aware, that has a, a monument to an IRA terrorist in the main square. <laughs> Used to see it when you came into land. So you see the guy with his, uh, his fist raised in the air, which is interesting. Um, but we'd, we'd emptied that base. It was a big base. Uh, I think there was like six troops in there. And we were told that they'd turned up at Cross McGlen. So we all steamed in there again, full up of troops. And the... Uh, you know that the fencing was on fire, and they'd actually start where we landed. Again, it's sort of know, maybe ten foot from the what from the fence, and then it was like some kind of scene out of a zombie movie. They'd actually started pulling. I remember seeing these hands go through the the plating, and they're pulling the the plating apart to try and get into us. And I'd say, while they're doing that, there's petrol bombs landing next to us, and these guys going out again and cracking the hands. It was just incredible. How did you personally feel being in that situation? Oh, Were you scared, or did you just get on with the job? It was just a massive high. Yeah. So, right. and it was uh, that was. I don't know three three hours forty of just constantly in and out of all these bases and you know so being bricked petrol bomb it, it was it was great and it was the only time in my career where I've <clears throat> we came back and we all had a beer at the end of the day and we just thought it was the only time we'd we'd ever made a you know a difference to and, and actually help people and uh, you know stop something bad happening so, so you must all felt good like you did something yeah it did it, it, it felt yeah. it felt really good yeah right. yeah. <clears throat> so Simon, how many hours did you get on the Puma? I think I've got about fifteen hundred now. So I did. I did my three years in Northern Ireland, and then I obviously did went on to the Merlin, the Griffin, and then I came back and did my, my last three years on the Puma as well. But I didn't get quite as many hours at the end, so I was mainly doing a, a, a trials job. So Simon, we're in there at Puma cockpit. Can you uh, go through it for us? Yeah, as you can see, it's a very modern, advanced, and complex designed aircraft. <laughs> but uh, this is uh, it's missing a few key things. No, it's very simple. Um, you obviously got your primary flying controls and displays here, so your airspeed indicator, attitude indicator. This is your head up, sorry, not head up display, <laughs> <laughs> that's your compass. Um, key one for a helicopter pilot is your radar altimeter there. Obviously you fly a lot of the time in reference to our height above the, the ground. Um, this is your undercarriage lever down here and this would go from green to red. These are your engine controls in the middle, so as you can see there's two of everything. Yeah. That's your key one your gas generator so as I said earlier below 75% is when the engines are really slow to respond. Your central warning panel there really <laughs> was very little on there um, you know there's only a few few um, uh, warnings that it could give you. Um, at the top if you if you did lose an engine you get your throttles here these would be fully forward like this normally in flight and you could bring them back to idle. These are your fuel shutoffs which you would if you need to shut down the engine in a hurry tail rotor's gone for example you, you'd put that this is your rotor brake as well. 
and then on the top various controls. Um, these are often in different positions on different aircraft as well, which is really confusing when you're learning to fly and learning the checks. Uh, the big hole down here is where the coffee machine goes. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, 252, which is your, um, um, your, your GPS navigation, etc. And these are your um, intercom boxes as well, yeah, basic. And this is your have quick radio here as well. So it's frequency agile hopping, so secure, but um, it was an absolute pain in the neck to set up. And your parking brake. Obviously this is your collective lever as well, so it controls your power. And you see you've got your flare release and chaff release on there as well. Um, basic autopilot. So it says Barrow, it's got a high told function. I can tell you almost never flip that button because it was bloody rubbish. <laughs> and your temperature gauge, funny old thing in Northern Ireland, it didn't go that high. <laughs> And then your fuel gauges. The one of the limitations of the Puma was um, it couldn't carry much fuel. So you only ever had about a thousand kilograms of fuel, which is about enough for an hour and a half. Um, it used to run out extremely quickly. Um, when we in Northern Ireland, we used to carry the bomb disposal wagons. Um, they weighed, I think, about two thousand kilograms. It used to give us about twenty minutes worth of fuel. So that's not a lot of time to get it, underslung it, and then take it somewhere and then fly back to the refuel slot. So Often and you would see the low level lights come on. So your minimum you could fly with is 50 kgs and you'd see these come on at 70. Um, and yeah, you often, I mean any pilot, will, Puma pilot will know, you, you often landed with almost no fuel. But that was all part of the fun. And your little transfer gauge as well, sorry, transfer pump. Very, very expensive uh, clock. <laughs> so Puma, it looks a bit rubbish, but it's bloody brilliant fun to fly. It's a real pilot's aircraft. As I said, you know, the autopilot's rubbish, it's all hands-on. So all the flying we did was hands-on and it was fun. Um, one of the really good things about the Puma, um, just about every helicopter in the world has got something called a torque gauge. Uh, you won't find a torque gauge on a Puma. Um, you will find a, in fact, I think, let's see if I can find it. Oh, okay, collective pitch gauge. This is what we flew with reference to. So um, an aircraft like the Merlin, you could you could break it if you say you had a high power setting and you rolled heavily um, to the I think it was the advancing blade, you could overtalk the aircraft, which is overstressing various bits and bobs. The engineers would get really grumpy with you. It cost you several crates of beer. Whereas the Puma, it used a collective pitch gauge. Uh, typically, we'd set 14 and a quarter degrees when we're flying, and you'd leave it there, and you could do whatever you wanted with the aircraft. Um, no matter the alt sorry, no matter the weight of the aircraft. So it was fun. It was it was basically flown like a fixed wing. So we'd set the cruise cruise pitch and then just fly it on the, the cyclic. So that was the kind of key that was what made the Puma fun really and the key difference between it and other aircraft. So it it's it's a bit old, it's a bit simple, but it's really good fun. A bit like me. <laughs> this welcome to the cabin of a Puma. I do apologise to any crewmen watching because this is their empire as the uh, the pilots who weren't allowed in here at all. Uh, generally in Northern Ireland we'd have a GPMG on the right hand side of the aircraft uh, sitting just here. Uh, generally the aircraft was in 12 seat fit, um, you can see at the moment it's only got four seats. Uh, we'd have another um, set of two here and two at the front. Uh, it could go up to 16 as well, um, but obviously at that stage you couldn't use... Uh, this is the hatch for the hook, so normally there'd be a hook hanging from the bottom of the... Um, I think it's on the bottom of the gearbox. And you'd have an undersung load underneath. We, we often we often flew with undersung loads in Northern Ireland. Um, all sorts of things like um, fuel um, fuel containers, taking them to um, remote um, patrol bases. Um, I think the worst load I flew, apart from a gazelle, um, was a, a 
a um, sack of crisps because <laughs> it didn't fly very well. <laughs> we could only fly about 20 knots because the, the, the net would get blown back up. It was absolutely rubbish. But uh, generally speaking, there were heavy loads that we carried underneath us and they, they would hang from here. Uh, the crewman would go down through this hatch and check the load was all correct. Not all of the crewmen could fit through here. There's one particularly large chap didn't. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Basic, it's a truck effectively. You know, it's an airborne truck. Uh, as, as you can see, there's a lot of things missing in here from the, um, you know, the operational aircraft.